Hey, thank you for the music. I love coming to the feast because you get to hear that special music. And uh, we definitely had some so far this week, and I'm sure you'll have some more as the feast continues. I just want to say thank you to everybody for your uh, generosity and hospitality since I've been here at the feast. I've really enjoyed it here in Canada. Every time I come to Canada, I really feel like I'm at home. So that's because of all of you. So thank you for that. Uh, before I leave here today, I want to make sure I, I said that. I might not get to do it uh, personally with everyone. So again, thank you for uh, all you've done for me uh, here. He could have called 10,000 angels, we just heard, but he didn't. So I'm going to use that as a segue into this discussion. So Christ had to make a decision there. Is he going to call these angels down? And he didn't. And we all make decisions every day. Some not as transformative as Christ's decisions, but someday they may be. Someday our decisions may be more so transformative than they are today. And I want to make that apparent to you by turning to Revelation 5 and verse 10. We never want to forget this uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles. This is one of my favorite scriptures. Revelation 5 and verse 10. Which says, you have made them to be a kingdom. Some translations say to be kings and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. So right at the outset, I want you to make sure you remember that you're in this to become a king and a priest. Now think about kings and priests. You've all had history lessons. You've all studied history. You're aware of what kings and priests do. You're aware of the Old Testament priests. You're aware of Christ being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So you know that kings and priests are decision makers. They are decisive. They decide and things happen. They can help transform things, the world, lives, no doubt about it. Don't forget that as I begin to discuss decision making in and out of the kingdom. Decision-making in and out of the kingdom. Isaiah chapter 30, as we heard with the scripture reading, let me turn there once again. Isaiah chapter 30, and many believe this is kingdom here. This is kingdom scripture. You definitely get the feel for that in this chapter and as I begin reading in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 20, it says the following. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. This is the way, walk in it. So your teachers are telling you, maybe those kings and priests are telling people in that kingdom, this is the way, walk in it. Others say, this is an allusion to Christ telling us, walk this way, walk that way. But we know that He's giving us a part in that kingdom because He wants us to be like our elder brother. He wants us to perform like our elder brother. Great sermonette by Adrian on things we need to be knowledgeable of in dealing with our brothers and sisters on a daily basis. Not only in that future kingdom, but right here and now. You can start practicing that right here and now. And He's watching your practice. This isn't a game, as Adrian said. 
This is real right now for us because we have knowledge that others do not. You're being judged right now. And lucky for us, it's a period of time. Decision making in God's kingdom and out of His kingdom. If you look at the commentaries on Isaiah 30, verses 20 and 21, I've given you a couple ideas of what they say, that these are the future kings and priests in that kingdom telling people the decisions they need to make, helping them along the way. Some say it's God's Spirit that will be doing that. Christ will be doing that. They also allude to the fact that the fact that this speaker is behind you is similar to the idea many of these ancient people had of the shepherd behind the flock, telling the flock in which direction to go. It all connects, folks. It all comes together for me, regardless of uh, how the commentaries are looking at this. There's no doubt about it. This is an allusion to the kingdom and the decisions that will be made there and our part the part we will play in helping that decision-making process in the future. So I want to talk, if you haven't guessed it yet, about decision-making. Not only in that future kingdom, but right here and now. The decisions we make every day. Now some of those decisions aren't, aren't such a big deal. What am I going to eat for breakfast today? Am I going to have a banana on my cereal or going to put blueberries on it or strawberries or whatever it may be? But I say that for this reason. We're always making decisions every day. There are thousands of things that go through your mind about this, that, or the other thing. Now, some of those decisions are much more important than others, and hopefully we can get get a little information today on how to make better decisions. I'm going to use some social science research once again. I like getting into that area. But I'm going to bring in how it relates to the Bible also as we look at some of the researchers out there who are looking at how we use our brain to make decisions. And I definitely see some connections to how God also makes decisions. Some of the information I'm going to provide you today comes from a book by Chip and Dan Heath called Decisive. If you haven't heard of these two brothers, they've written a number of books, a couple other ones that I've read, Made to Stick, that has to do with how we can have our messages stick with people, and... uh, There's another book I've read of theirs that is escaping me right now. Check with me later as I try to remember that one. But Decisive is the book that a lot of this research material that I will be quoting comes from. And again, we're going to relate that to Scripture. But here's what Chip and Dan Heath say in their book, Decisive. That in order to make better decisions, there are four things we need to keep in mind. Let me just uh, synopsize these, and then we'll go into the details. Number one, many times when we make decisions, we think our decision is an either-or concept. That we either have to do this, or we've got to do that. That it's this or that. Basically, two thoughts that you have in mind. i got to do this, or i got to do that. What they say that is, is narrow framing that you're limiting yourself in your decision-making. If you take a little more time and think, are there other options? And when you can add more options to your decision-making, sometimes that's a better way to go. I'm not saying always, okay? But if we have more than just two options, when we only have two, we're limiting ourselves in some ways. If we take a little more time and a little more energy to think of some more possibilities, we might have something a little better than option A and option B. Now, I'll get into that in a little bit. 
So widen your option. Think of more possibilities. Number two, another problem we have in decision making is what's known as confirmation bias. And a lot of people in the world do this when we bring the truth of God's message to them. Confirmation bias basically means that you look for information that already supports what you believe and hold to. You're looking for information that backs up your particular perspective already. It's difficult for us to look at that other point of view, that other perspective, which brings in listening, folks, something we have some problems with. We need to listen much better than just speak and tell people things. Because once you listen to the other person, it may help you speak to that other person so they will understand you better. So confirmation bias is another problem in our decision making. You want to reality test your assumptions, your ideas. A third problem we have in decision making is short-term emotion. Those of you that bought cars many years ago, today it's a little bit different with cars. It's, it's much easier to buy a car. They don't haggle with you so much. But years ago when you'd buy a car, the salesman would, or woman would put some pressure on you. Okay? This, this sale's only for 24 hours. You gotta do it now or this is gonna, not gonna be here tomorrow. Okay? You don't want to get into those types of decisions. You want to take a step back. Let that short-term emotion fade away. Sleep on it, you've probably heard. And then make a decision. So again, short-term emotion. Watch out for it. You want to attain a little bit of distance before you make an important decision. The fourth point they address is overconfidence in your decision-making. Many times we think, I know the answer, I know the right thing to do, and boom, you just do it. Not thinking about the fact you could be wrong. So in order to overcome this overconfidence, Chip and Dan Heath talk about what are called tripwires. And I'll discuss what they mean by that so we can make better informed decisions. So let me begin with the narrow framing idea that that you think there's only an option A and only an option B when you are making a decision. There are usually more options available and you may want to think about those other options. Think of it this way. When you really focus on something, let's take a decision. When you're really focused on it, in a sense, you've got blinders on. Okay? When you've got a narrow framing that it's only A or only B, you're kind of shutting everything else out from your peripheral vision. And these fellas say, don't do that. They say, necessity is the mother of invention. When you really got to make an important decision, if you spend a little time thinking about it, if it is that important, hopefully other options are going to open up in your mind on that particular issue. When we think about the church today, and we see that the church, going back to, I was never in Worldwide, but the stories I hear were that people would come to feast sites and there'd be 10,000 people at some feast sites. That's not happening anymore in the Churches of God movement, folks. That is not happening anymore. So we need some new and fresh ideas on how to hopefully get that to happen. So we don't want to limit the possibilities. We can't do things the way we've always done them if we're getting the same results which are not the best results. We've got to think of some different things. Now, the Heath brothers talk about what some decision makers do, 
which is called multi-tracking. Some businesses will bring in a couple consultants or a couple different ideas from other places, and they will begin to pay these consultants separately for a period of time to see which of their ideas is actually working the best before they realize, wow, this this seems to be going better than these other two options. Now, not all corporations have the money to do that, but some of the bigger ones do, where they will multi-track the idea to see which one is best. They're not limiting themselves to just focusing in on one consultant to answer their problem. They're letting a few do a little bit of the work to see which might have the best option for them. So that's something to think about to give yourself more options. Think about multi-tracking those possibilities and seeing if you can observe what happens for a short period of time before you make a decision on something. Another thing they talk about to guard against this narrow framing that we sometimes have a problem with is to find someone who's already solved that problem. Now, we talked on the first night about vulnerability, remember? Find someone who's already solved that problem. If you aren't able to be vulnerable with some close people in the church, you may never hear that they've already dealt with that problem. Or they know of someone who has dealt with that problem already. And now there may be a solution that you were blind to because you were trying to hold it in and do it all on your own. Again, that narrow framing can cause us problems in decision making. Now let me relate this spiritually in the Bible for a moment. Narrow framing. Think of that phrase, narrow framing. And think about God working with mankind through history. Has God decided that this is it and that's all there is to it? Does God just make a snap judgment about everyone and it's over? Not exactly if we read the entire Bible. God seems to open things up to various possibilities. Think about Adam and Eve. If they continued without taking of the fruit, would things have been good for them? Now, they might have sinned later, but God had a plan, and if we got off that plan, He had another option for us to be saved through. Isn't that true? So God is not into narrow framing. Think of free will itself. Now, there are some out there who argue that there is no free will and they're going to argue these biological ideas they say that science is proving. There are scientists who are proving just the opposite, folks, that there is free will. And let me tell you, I believe we have free will. How could we not? Okay? But here's what I want to say about free will. What does free will do for you? It gives you options, does it not? You get to decide. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God gives you the power to make that decision because He doesn't want any robots. This isn't a game. When that kingdom starts, He's got a way forward that we're going. It's no playing around when we get into the kingdom, folks. When that plan is implemented, we're going. There's no more messing around like everybody's messing around on this earth, folks. It's time to, it's time to go. It's time to go. So interesting. We can see some relation here to how God's mind works and what the researchers of human decision making are saying. So point number one, remember, don't narrowly frame your options. There are often more options available to you that you need to take a look at before you make those important decisions that you need to make in life. The second point, 
we addressed. Let's take a closer look at it. Confirmation bias. Confirmation bias. That you're only looking at information that you're either familiar with or that supports what you already believe. Now again, in some ways that's good with the truth of God's Word, okay? So don't don't listen to me in the wrong way here. But sometimes, if we don't listen to our brother or sister in the group here, when they have that different idea that you feel is off-kilter, by listening them to it completely, you may understand why they have that idea and have more information you can provide to them as to why you think that idea is not a good idea. But if you offhandedly just shut shun them and shut them out without at least giving them a few minutes, looking them in the eye, closing your mouth, giving them that time to hear what's going on. Why do you believe this or that? That may make all the difference in them hearing you and what you have to say, especially if they are off track from what the Bible is teaching. Take a look with me in Genesis 3 for a moment. Does God, and one, one technique that the book Decisive says to use to overcome your confirmation bias is to consider the opposite of what your point of view may be or what you think your decision should be. Play, and please excuse the phrase, play devil's advocate. And you know, I was in lots of meetings working in the government for 33 some years. And we had a way we wanted to go. And what we would often do is we would have somebody in our team play the devil's advocate, throw spears at what we wanted to do, and say, wait a minute, here's a problem with that. Here's another problem with that. Because that helps you get grounded in seeing whether or not your idea is the correct idea or not. So consider the opposite. Now does God, does God allow us to consider the opposite? Think of that for a moment. Turn with me again back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Because God said that, right? This is the way. Don't eat from this tree. You can eat from these trees. He laid it out. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, Now check it out. You will not surely die. Consider the opposite. You will not surely die. Now that is the opposite, is it not? That's a bad opposite too. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's asking her to consider the opposite. And we know that that opposite was wrong. No doubt about it. But who allowed... The serpent to be there. Who allowed the serpent to be there? You know this world is crazy, folks. You know there's a spiritual force of wickedness in the world. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. Who allows that spiritual force to be in the world? Is there a purpose for that wicked spiritual force in the world to show us the opposite. For what purpose? To make sure. To make sure that those who are going to be kings and priests are locked in, are ready for the implementation plan, are not going to go this way or that way. That there's no doubt When he brings it forward and that plan begins, there is no doubt with his team. 
So he allows the opposite to be there for you to make those choices each and every day. And he watches those choices. And Adrian gave a great example. It's a great segue to me here today. That even within the church, are we making the wrong choices with each other? That he is watching and judging Right now, right now for us. Don't ever forget that. Yeah, there's a second resurrection. But if you've been baptized and believe, man, you got to get it together now, right now. Get with the program now. Make the right decisions now, right now, this moment, this moment. We think too much of the future. And the future is going to be great and stupendous. But what you do right now, right now, right now, right now, each and every moment, each and every decision makes a difference. Some of those decisions much more than others. Consider the opposite. That can help you in making better decisions. Another technique they talk about to overcome confirmation bias is what they describe as zooming out and zooming in. Zooming out and zooming in to help you make decisions. What do they mean by that? I'll give you an example. Ann Mulcahy became the CEO of Xerox Corporation in 2001. When she became the CEO of Xerox, the leaders put her in charge because they thought Xerox was going to die as a company. And they didn't think she was going to do anything about it, okay? So they put her in charge in 2001. At that point in history, Xerox was $19 billion in debt. Now that's pretty hard to overcome. They were $19 billion in debt in 2001. Six years later, she had cut that debt in half and increase the stock of the company six times. Six times. They said it was a miracle what she did with Xerox. You can read about that. A lot of case studies of that are in various books. But here's what she did. This is one of the things she said that helped bring that company back from the dead. She, she called this her Focus 500 plan where every top executive in the company had to work closely with one of the customers of the company. Because think of the top executives, right? They're making those big decisions. They don't usually get down there with the people on the plant floor. They aren't usually there with the customers. There are other people out there with those customers, dealing with those customers. But she said, we got to really connect here with our customers to stay alive. So she made all her top executives connect with at least one customer, a major customer of the corporation. And she said that that was one of the reasons that the company started to come back. Because now that the top executives were mixing it up with the people that really mattered for the company, they had a relationship that they never had before which allowed them to make better decisions about things. So so what she's saying is, by zooming in and zooming out. So the, the people who are up here are zooming in to what's really happening and then zooming out to make those big decisions they have to make. When I read that in the book, I immediately thought of some things in the Bible that maybe some of you are thinking about right now. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 11 and verse 5 for a moment. Genesis 11, 5. And let me just read very quickly verse 5 of Genesis 11. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord came, the Lord zoomed in, folks. Now some people say, oh, that's just anthropomorphism. You know, the the liberal critics of the Bible say, oh, when you see scriptures like that, the Lord coming down or the Lord of being on earth to check things out, 
that's just anthropomorphism, that the people who wrote the Bible were trying to make God seem more like them. No, folks, that's because that's who God is. He wants a personal relationship. He wants to, to for Him to be as real to you as the person sitting next to you. So He came down to get a closer look. Genesis 18.21. I'm not going to turn there. This is the Lord coming down to Sodom to check things out. Exodus 3 and verse 8. Let's go ahead and turn to that one. Exodus 3 and verse 8. And there are numerous other examples. Exodus 3 and verse 8. Is God zooming in here? Exodus 3 verse 8. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good, spacious land. He even says that I've come down. The cloud and the fire went with Israel, didn't it? He was zooming in, folks. He was right there with them. Because we're important to Him. We're part of this plan that He is working out here. And other scripture, I won't turn there. Exodus 19 and verse 11. He comes down to Sinai. And what happens with the people? They can't handle it. They're afraid of that close relationship. Why? They realized how vulnerable they were before the awesome God. Talk about vulnerability. He's right there. And they were scared. They were scared to really have that relationship. Are we afraid to really have authentic relationships with each other? Because relationships can be scary, folks. They can be scary when you're really in that relationship. Those of you who are married know what I'm talking about. One more example of this zooming in and zooming out is in the New Testament. You guys know where I'm going. I don't need to go to the Scriptures, right? Who came down to this earth and became like us? How much more can you zoom in, folks? He became human. <laughs> Why? Why? He's God. But yes, that's it. He's God. Was God ever flesh and blood? Literal flesh and blood. Tempted like as you are. By zooming in to that degree, he had a better and greater understanding of what needs to be done. Think of him as that top executive, folks. Zooming in on his people, getting the deal. Why? Because he's going back up to the big CEO, the Father, to mediate for you and me. Isn't it interesting? <laughs> I find this fascinating how the social scientists, the research they do about our mind and how it works, just this one example of decisions we make, how that relates to Scripture just blows me away. But it shouldn't. It shouldn't because who created the human mind? Who created the human mind? You got that answer. One more example of how to overcome confirmation bias. This one's a little fun. They use a little funny word for this. They call it ooching. Ooching. So what they say ooching is, is you construct small experiments to test your hypothesis. So rather than just believe that your decision is going to be right and don't look at any other information, you test out your information. You test out your information. Now, now what do I mean by that? Well, they, they talked about a guy coming in for a job interview who had a earring through his nose, had a couple earrings in his ears, uh, he had tattoos on, and he spoke haltingly in the interview process, and he was kind of saying, yeah, I don't know, man, I don't, you know. So, not your, not the way you want to do an interview in the corporate world. They, they talked about this example. But here's what they also did. And a lot more corporations and businesses are doing this today. They're not just going with the interview. 
They're looking for a work sample now also. So they got this guy to actually do some of the work he would be doing for this particular uh, company. And when the results came back, this guy's work sample was number one. But the executives didn't want to deal with this guy because of his interview. Because of how he looked, how he spoke, that initial impression. That initial impression. Where somebody comes walking into church one day for the first time, who may look a bit disheveled, who may have some problems, and people kind of feel a little funny about that sometimes. Not everybody, but some people do. I've seen it. I did a an experiment at a feast many years ago in South Carolina where we had a control person sit in the audience at church during an infused meeting before church started, and he was wearing a baseball cap and a t-shirt and ripped jeans, and he came in and sat among our young people, and there were adults there also, and everybody kind of stayed away from him. (laughs) They were a few chairs away from this guy. And at the end, I told my, my friend to ask questions and this and that. And everybody kind of turned and looked at the, at the guy. And they had not even noticed that he was there yet. You get what I'm saying here? Because when this guy was hired for this corporation and they got to know this guy, he turned out to be an excellent worker for the company. And the guys who wrote the book said they were totally shocked that this guy who were they just they were discounting in that first interview even though he had the best work sample they were reading confirmation bias nobody with a, an earring in their nose or tattoos on their body is going to come to church or or I should say corporation but let me bring that to the church environment you know Adrian said we got to seek out the lost you know that's what God's trying to do don't ever forget that Don't let your confirmation bias of who's supposed to be sitting here stop you from being as welcoming to that person as anybody else who comes through that door. Deuteronomy 8. Does God, does God test things out? Does God do this? Deuteronomy 8. There are, there are a few scriptures I could go to here, but let me give you one because I don't have all that time. Deuteronomy 8. Is God constructing small experiments to test His hypotheses on those who have His Holy Spirit? Deuteronomy 8, verse 1. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live. And folks, if you live, you can help others live. Getting that theme in, Maury. I just, just came to me right now. <laughs> so that you live, you may help others live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised an oath to your forefathers. Verse two, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and get this, to test you. Let me repeat it. To test you. You don't like the world? The world's tough on you? You're having some trouble in this world? Folks, He's testing you. What's coming? You're going to be a top executive in life, folks. He's got to make sure you got it together. To test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep His commands. God's testing His hypotheses, folks. He's checking you out. There are other examples in the Bible where He uses this very same language. Isn't it interesting that these social scientists have found another another method to get away from your confirmation bias? Because God wants to save everyone, doesn't He? That's what we read in this book. He wants to save everyone, but he can't. He can't because there's something on that other end. You've got to do your part in this. 
Your part is obedience and following Him. Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10. That those who spit, and I'm using my own words here, who spit or trample on His Holy Spirit. Once you get that Holy Spirit, if you act in a totally different way, which you have free will to do, and you go in an alternate path to what that Holy Spirit is leading you, you're in trouble, as Adrian said. Put that millstone around your neck. There's a bad reckoning coming. It's real, folks. This is real stuff. Our problem is in this physical world, we don't have God speaking to us in an audible way. But you have His words right here. This is it right here. This is it right here. This is your test right here. Point number three. Point number three. In trying to make better decisions. Overcome that initial emotional reaction that we sometimes use to make a decision. Young folks, keep that in mind. You'll want to be with your group. You'll want to be with the other folks. You'll want to feel like you're part of it. And I can remember as, as a young teen, I didn't go out drinking with my buddies because my mother's influence over me was much stronger than my buddies. There were some times where I was making a decision. And I went home. And they took my beanie cap off and ran with it to, for me to chase them. They later urinated on it. Okay, I don't know why I'm telling you that, but uh, it bothered me. That was one of my favorite hats uh, for my, my college team I was rooting for. So yeah, we go through some things. That's not a big, that's not really going through something. Many of us are going through much more. But I had to make a decision. Okay, my emotions were, I want to be with my friends. You know, I can relate to them better than my mom, you know. But my mom was right. My mom was right. It's against the law to go drinking when you're 15 and 16 years old in the United States. It's against the law. My mother was setting me up for what was to come. To get into this law and follow this law. Because of what's coming. We gotta be patient for what's coming. What's coming is greater than anything that's here right now. I'm 56 years old right now. I'm wasting away, folks. I can't do what I used to do as a young man physically. You know, I was into exercising and everything. God is humbling me by me real. I can't do that anymore. I've hurt myself trying to do those things, okay? Lifting weights and, and all of that. Not that we shouldn't keep exercising and maintaining this body which allows the presence of His Holy Spirit, but it is fading away. It is fading away. And as you get older, you realize that more and more. And hopefully you make better decisions. But let's make the decisions right from the beginning. Let's do better work than we've done in the past. So you want to attain distance when that emotion first comes up. Sleep on it before you make a decision. Don't discount anything initially. Do a little research on it before you tell that person, that's a crazy idea. Why? Why is it crazy? Well, because it's just crazy. We've never taught that before. We've never heard that before. Wait a minute. Is that how Christ might have dealt with that person? Or would He have given a better answer than that? So you need to know your Bible to give that better answer. And that takes time. That takes effort. Overcoming short-term emotion. Once again, I thought of the Bible. And guess where I went? Genesis 18. There are a number of examples like this. It's, it's, it's uncanny. Genesis 18. Does God think like this when He makes decisions? Does He let that short-term emotion go? Genesis 18. Genesis 18, verse 16. 
When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham, walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children. Direct his children. And his household after him. To keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Again, what did I say about Christians in my earlier message? They are children of Abraham, heirs according to Abraham. And what, what was the covenant? You follow what Abraham was taught and what Abraham learned all the way, folks. And we've begun to let that go. And we know what's coming. But picking it back up in verse 20. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous. Don't you feel that emotion there? Their sin is so grievous and he's a righteous and holy God. He's got to punish that activity. Verse 21, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Look at that wording there. It's incredible. He's not only going down, he's going to check it out so he will know. So he will know. Verse 22, the men turned away and went toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous in the city? Now we go through a little discourse here between Abraham and God. Where Abraham knows what God has in mind. And Abraham begins to talk to him about it. And as we go through this, 50 and 40 or 30 and 10... He gets, he gets him down to a number where God may have had a mindset to just wipe these folks out. So God has given himself a little bit of space there to at least talk things out with this person he is in relationship with. Much like we do in prayer, I hope. There are other examples of this in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 32, and I'm not going to turn there, Exodus 32, verses 9 through 14. We see Moses doing this very same thing with God. Where God's emotion is there to wipe some people out. But he talks it over with Moses and relents. What did we just say the experts on decision making are saying? That in order to make better decisions, you think about it a little bit. You let the emotion go for a little bit. Not that God's judgment isn't righteous, but that God is open to that relationship He has with us. To hearing us out. To talking it over. And with the various options that he can have his plan work out in, he's able to do it in a different way. Interesting, interesting. Others call this the mere exposure principle, that this causes that emotional reaction that sometimes has you make a wrong decision. And and the emotion comes from this, that just being exposed to something over a long period of time, creates an affinity for you in whatever that thing is. Think of abuse in this in this area. People are sometimes confused. How could that woman stay with that man who continually beat her? How could she stay with him? Sometimes people are just at a, at a loss as, as to why. There are a number of reasons why. And one of them has to do with this affinity principle. That there may not be other options out there, but just that this might be better than anything else out there. That at least I got a roof over my head and food at night because that person may have lived a life where they didn't even have that before. 
Do you understand what I'm saying here? Now they say sometimes familiarity breeds contempt, but familiarity can also breed affinity or a feeling that there can't be anything better, that this is the best I can get out of life. And if you haven't experienced life on that other side, believe me, when you counsel people, you find out about that other side. And then you aren't as shocked. This is serious business. It's hard to get the mindset of your elder brother, Jesus Christ. It is not easy to do that. But you got to put yourself inside of somebody else's experience to really get it. Which he did. Which he did. Grant that I may not criticize my neighbor until I've walked a mile in his moccasins. I heard that when I was a kid. I understand that much better today. We have to live that principle. Grant that I may not criticize not only your neighbor on the outside, folks, but even more importantly, your neighbor here. Even more your neighbor here in the church. Why are the churches so scattered and broken up? Because we aren't living by that principle. Mere exposure principle. You develop a preference for things that are more familiar to you. This helps you make some bad decisions sometimes. Think of the world at the end. Right before the kingdom comes. Think of this mere exposure principle. There's an invasion from outer space. The world has been in a tribulation. Before Christ finally begins His return to earth. The world is in tribulation. There are people, the two witnesses, have preached the truth of God to the world in some way. And what does the world do as Christ returns? They fight Him! (laughs) They fight against Him! Why? Well, lots of reasons. But I think the mere exposure principle plays a part. Because this is all they know. This is all they know. They've never believed this to any degree. They don't know this to the degree we know it. It's not real to them. And it will become less real to them as we move closer to that day. Read this while you got the time, folks. They're going to try to take it away from us. You better start memorizing it. Get your children to know it in their head. You know many Muslims can recite their Quran verbatim without reading it, without looking at it? Do you put that intensity into your study of His Word? I know we got to earn a living. I know we got families. But is there some extra time that we are using in pursuits that are going nowhere for us? Just something to think about when we think about decision making. Why does God make His kingdom last for a thousand years? Taking this to the other end of the argument. Why a thousand year kingdom? Why not fifty? Why not a hundred? Why not three hundred? Why not five hundred? Maybe because the people who are around during that period will not know anything else. That anything that comes later, which will be bad, Satan will be released. And he's coming back and he's going to get some. He's going to get some to fight again. But maybe a lot are going to be 
sticking to the obedience because of the affinity they had for that kingdom period and all the time it lasts, all that exposure to the blessings of God in that kingdom period was Satan out of the way. They did a little experiment on this mere exposure principle. Just let me bring it to uh, a physical uh, example here. They did something called the mug experiment where they gave a number of uh, students a mug. And they said, this is your mug. So half of the students in the experiment got this mug. The other half did not. Then they took a little time and they later asked the students who had received the mug, how much would you take, how much money would you take to give up this mug to someone? The average amount was $7 and some change. Then they asked the people who never got a mug, how much money would you pay for a mug like this? And the average person who had never received the mug said $2 and some change. Again, proving the mere exposure principle. That the more you're exposed to something and have it part of you, the harder it is for you to let go of that. Think of all your friends and family you've told about Christmas or Easter or whatever it is. It's hard to let that go. The mere exposure principle. The final point on making better decisions is not to be overconfident in your decisions from the beginning. Don't be overconfident. Now, how can you guard against being overconfident? Because when you come to a decision... You know, you think, well, I've thought about this, I've looked at this, I've looked at that, I've talked to this person, talked to that person, I'm going to make my decision now. And we all know that many times those decisions might have not been the best. So another way to guard against this overconfidence of decision making is to set up a tripwire for yourself. So what do I mean by a tripwire? A signal that snaps us awake at the right moment, a signal that jolts us out of our unconscious routines. For example, you know on some roadways, there's little rumble strips on the side of the road. So if you start veering to the side too much, your tire goes over the rumble strip and it goes, you guys have all experienced that before? Those rumble strips are there as a tripwire because people fall asleep at the wheel and they start veering over to the right or left. And that tripwire hopefully jolts them awake. So what kind of tripwires can we create to help us make better decisions? I'll give you an example that relates to a spiritual example. The company called Zappos, anybody heard of this company? It's a shoe company, Zappos. I didn't know too much about them, but their customer service is off the charts. And let me tell you just an example of their customer service. One patron called the company to buy a certain shoe that the company was out of stock in. But the person who answered the phone, because of the training they receive in customer service, this person went out to another shoe company, bought the shoes there, called up the person who had called who was in a hotel, and said, I'm going to bring you the shoes to your hotel room. That's the type of customer service this particular company is known for, Zappos. Here's what they do in their initial training with their employees. During the first week of training, it's just a typical onboarding type of training. But in the second week of training, what they do, believe it or not, they offer the new employee $4,000 to quit. Now think about that for a minute. You're you're in your second week of training with this company, and they offer you $4,000 to quit the company. Now $4,000, that's not too bad. You know, that's not too bad. Why do they do that? Why do they do that? The same reason why God is chastising you at times why God has you in this world today. They want to make sure 
that these people are all in. That there's no doubt they want to work for Zappos and they're going to give customer service like that person who answered the phone and realized they didn't have that shoe in stock. You'd think, oh, okay, we didn't just have the shoe. Maybe a couple months from now we'll have it. No, they went to another company, bought the shoes, and not only had them in their in their uh, office or their business, they went and delivered those shoes to that person in their hotel room. What kind of service is that? That's the service Christ is looking for. That's the If I can relate it to customer service, that's the customer service Jesus Christ is looking for from us. So the $4,000 giveaway to people who didn't want to be part of the company, that was the company's tripwire. You get what I'm saying? That was their way of seeing who's really into this. Who's all in for working here? So the next time you're having trouble in life and you're down and you're depressed and you're anxious about the problems that have arisen in your life, and it'll come, it'll come, just remember, just remember this example, folks. He wants to make sure you're all in because what you're going to receive in that future What you're going to receive in that future is unlike anything you can even imagine right now. Your ability to grasp what that is is just not there. It is so beyond your ability to understand. But you've got to believe that that is the only future you would want. Preparing to be wrong, setting up those trip wires. Now, now here's what I thought about when I thought about this. Isn't, isn't the resurrection, the second resurrection, isn't that a trip wire in a sense? From this standpoint, think of it from this standpoint. Those Buddhists, And Muslims and Hindus who were sold on their false religion, when they wake up, when they wake up, they will know that they had been dead. Do you get what I'm saying? Let me give you the definition of the tripwire again. It jolts us out of our unconscious routines. A signal that snaps us awake at the right moment. You wake up from being dead and you are made aware of what hopefully we are aware of in this book. You begin to learn and understand the truth from God. And you will then have to make a decision like we're making right now. Isn't that a tripwire. I, I get that as being a tripwire when I look at God's plan and what He's doing down here below. One other thing that helps you deal with your overconfidence in decision making is talking things out. Bargaining. And we've already addressed that in another way with another one of these uh, items we were discussing with God talking to those he believe, who are believing in Him. So bargaining, okay? Talking it out with someone before you come to a decision on what you're going to do. And the final example they gave on overcoming your overconfidence, be prepared to be wrong so you can then make a better decision, use those tripwires to make that better decision. They called it trusting the process. And trusting the process was essentially taking the decision out of your hand. That sometimes if you can set up a process where you don't have to make the decision, that sometimes that helps you make a better decision. Now I'm not going to get into the book examples of that. I want to get into the spiritual example of that. Because I got a really good 
spiritual example of trusting the process. Folks, what is the process? When you think of this book, what is the process? What do you do with this book that helps make the decisions for you? The Holy Spirit, I heard. I get that. And what does the Holy Spirit help you do? Obey God's law. The law is a process. Blessings and cursings, remember that? Follow this process, Abraham. Follow this process, Moses. Follow this process, Christian. The commandment keepers and the testimony of Jesus. That's who Satan's coming after. What is the process? If you think of the law, when I was that little 15 and 16 year old kid who my friends were saying, let's go drink over here. The answer was, I can't. Because my mother says no. And I got to honor my mother and father. Because that's what the law says. Do you see what I'm saying? The decision was taken out of my hands because my mother had ingrained that in my brain. There was no decision for me. I just went home. And it kept me out of trouble. My buddies got arrested one night when they were drinking. And it caused them some problems in their life. Getting into college. They got, they got better. They got into college and they're living good lives today. But I didn't have that problem. Because I followed the process. I obeyed the law. And if you obey the law, and you know the law, you don't have to guess at what the decision is. You know what the decision is. Folks, concluding, we've got to make better decisions. Decision making now and in the kingdom. We've got to start practicing making those better decisions now. How can you do that? Widen your options. Don't fall for confirmation bias. Take in more information before you make a decision. Take time to mull it over. Don't just snap, make a decision because of emotional feeling. Suddenly, take some time, sleep on it. And watch your overconfidence. Prepare to be wrong. Set up some tripwires in your life that will help you make better decisions. And never forget, you don't know what you don't know. But folks, if you're here today, what you do know, what you do know will help you make the most important decisions in your life.